series, Radical Commitment, but it's really about Paul. And uh, we've been tracing his transformation when he first comes to know Jesus. And then we've been sitting with this series, this kind of emerging, um, you know, what we call his first missionary journey. But it really has to do with, we've been tracing the, the growth of the church as it breaks out of its sort of definition as a exclusively sort of Jewish community of believers in Jesus. And it pushes into the Gentile world and, and the, the non-Jewish, the Greco-Roman world um, opened up in an amazing way. Some of us remember this, that we, you know, we've spent some time here, even at the passage that we're going to look at, we, you might have looked at it already. Again, if you were here last week, you go, hey, didn't we cover that already? Yes, we did. And, and yet, I want us to take a, a look at it in a very different way. In fact, I, I often think of a, a certain passage, certain things in the scripture, like a piece of art, um, something that's three-dimensional, like a sculpture. Maybe looking at it straight on, we might see something. But then if we move, uh, move around and look at it from a different angle, it, it, it says something different to us. And in a lot of ways, this passage has more to it. Um, I'm actually going to talk about uh, what's in a name. And I'm, I'm going to talk about, Lord willing, that there's a lot more than we might initially see. And uh, that there's, there's something in here that is going to invite us to also think about how the Lord wants us to grow in our, in, our, in our life with him. So, you know, as we come to Acts 13, just setting the, the table, so to speak, we may recall that the Gentile church in Antioch broke out to everybody's surprise. No one was expecting it. Antioch of Syria, modern-day Turkey, all these places, again, I like to say it, geographically, you know, they're on the map. They're real places. In the news a lot today, uh, this part of the world Jesus said, would never lose a sense of importance and significance. Stuff will always be happening, he said, to the end of the age. Now, in Syria, we noticed that Antioch of Syria was at the time the third greatest city in, in the Roman Empire. At least it was considered that by many. And it was a, you know, a mag it's just kind of like a, a, a gathering of different, different types of ethnicities and uh, different types of people from different classes. It was just a wild city. And out of all the places, no one expected that there would, a church would break out in Antioch. And in, particularly, no one expected that it would break out amongst the Gentiles. And when it happened, it caught everybody off guard. They were actually receiving an opening of the message of Jesus. And a church emerges. And so eventually, Barnabas goes up there. He was sent by the church in Jerusalem to check it out. He goes there. He's excited about it. He gets Paul, who's up in Tarsus. says, at the time, he's only known as Saul. He's not even known as Paul yet. Saul is his Hebrew name. He's uh, asked to come down because he's aware of the burden that, that Saul had for the, the Gentiles as well. And, and he ends up co-pastoring the church in Antioch. Well, anyway, the elders get together. We talked about this. They pray. They ask God for direction. And, and to everybody's amazement, they get a sense of, real, uh, uh, of leading of the Holy Spirit. In fact, you'll notice that it will say that they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. That it was God's behind it. He's in it. And they all had that deep conviction that the Lord was about to do something new. They didn't know what, but they had a sense that they were supposed to go out. And that there would come an openness to the gospel in some way. And, of course, what happens is they get on a ship. They, they sail down the harbor in Seleucia. They get on another ship. And they head towards the island of Cyprus. They get to Salamis on the east coast. And they begin to make their way across the island to where the seat of, Roman gover of the governor was in the island of Paphos. And there's this amazing incident that occurs as described here in Acts 13. I just, you know, just read through it fairly quickly, not, not 
creating the same scenario we looked at last week, but just covering it because I want to get to something. It says, so Barnabas and Saul were sent out by the Holy Spirit. This is verse 4, Acts 13. They went down to the seaport of Seleucia, and then they sailed for the island of Cyprus, just like we said. And there, in the town of Salamis, they went to the Jewish synagogues, and they preached the word of God. And they had an assistant with them. His name was John Mark. That's the Mark that um, the second gospel is named after, uh, who seemed to have been very close um, to Simon Peter. Afterwards, they traveled from town to town across the entire island until they finally they reached Paphos, where they met. And we're, we would, it says here a Jewish sorcerer, a false prophet, uh, a practitioner of what we might call basic chemistry mixed with kind of these dark spiritual, um, you know, sort of beliefs. And his name, he called himself Bar-Jesus, which is interesting because he was essentially saying he was the son of the Savior. That was his, the name that he gave himself. Uh, he, he attached himself, we know his real name was Elimas, as we're told later. He attached himself to the governor, Sergius Paulus, who was an intelligent man. The Bible describes him as a real, you know, it's interesting because here is this governor, Sergius Paulus, who's clearly a seeker of spiritual things. He's a very spiritual man. He's also described as being very intelligent, highly educated. He's, you know, obviously gifted. Uh, you, you wouldn't have risen to that level of prominence, and if he didn't have certain capacities and trainings and backgrounds, he was a smart man. The Bible makes it clear. And yet, he was being deceived. It, it's fascinating to see it. He, he could be so accomplished, and yet under such spiritual deception. I mean, he had he'd been taken in by what amounts to a charlatan. Uh, this man had, had claimed to be a vehicle of truth, and he knew that uh, the governor had an appreciation for the, the faith of, of Israel. And then he had a, a basic belief, it would appear, in, in something about the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And anyway, we're told here that Sergius Paulus, who is a, a bright person, a, an intelligent man, a man of knowledge, but nonetheless spiritually sort of deceived, that he invited Barnabas and Saul. Evidently, word got back to him that Barnabas and Saul um, were talking about some things that he had never heard before. They were, they were talking about how the Messiah had actually come, how the promise uh, that had been given to Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Messiah had come, and that he, he had died for us. And, and they were talking about the cross and the resurrection and what that meant. And, and he wanted to hear more about it. And so in an official way, he invited them to come. And we sort of traced that journey. We, we talked about what it must have been like. We looked at the, the Mediterranean, its turquoise beauty, and we talked about how he would have been on the top of the town, sitting on a, on a hill with the palatial estate, looking over that beautiful scenery in the Mediterranean with the sun and how it must have been for Barnabas and Saul because they had, they had believed that this time would come and now the door was swinging open, an actual invitation with the most powerful man in that, on that island who was interested in hearing what they had to say and they had to believe that God was in it. And so they made their way up those steps. We, we were talking about it. They made their way finally to the palace. It must have been somewhat intimidating. You get there. Uh, there's the, the governor of Rome sitting, no doubt, on his judgment seat. There's a form of people, attendants of every kind, soldiers, and, of course, Elimas is there as well. We, we set the scene. Their time to give their presentation occurs. Go ahead. We want to hear what you have to say. Speak. He starts to talk, starts to share the gospel. As they're doing that, um, we're told that something happens. It says that, but Elimas, the sorcerer, interfered and urged the governor, look at that, verse 8, urged the governor to pay no attention to what Barnabas and Saul said. He was trying to keep the governor from believing so somewhere in there, he's watching what's happening, and he's getting concerned because it seems that uh, you know, Sergius Paulus is actually 
listening and being drawn in to what Barnabas and Saul are saying. It appears that Saul is the one now that is prim primarily speaking, or at least it, it, it implies it. And he's intrigued. And so Elimas is concerned, and he doesn't want this thing to actually take any root. He wants to cut it off before it even gets a chance to get going. And so he interrupts their conversation, and he says, don't listen to these men. They don't know what they're talking about. They're trying to deceive you. That's the irony of it. Not only was he open in his own, he was, he was a disbelieving man, but he seems to be like, a, like some people who are not content in their own disbelief, but at the same time feel compelled to want to undermine even the beginnings of faith in other people. And he says, don't have anything to do with these men. And then that creates, sets up one of the, the first time we ever really see Paul, Saul in this case, have a confrontation, a spiritual confrontation. It's the first of many. And we're told it was a, a, a power exchange. Look what, it, look what happens. It says that Saul, also known as Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he, and he looked the, the source of the prophet, the false prophet in the eye, and he, and he said, you son of the devil. He called himself Bar Jesus, son of the Savior. And I don't miss that, the look in the eye. He's looking at him. They're looking at each other. And there's a lot going on with the eyes. And we're going to see something, uh, what we know. He's looking at him in the eye, and he says, you, son, and it says, fill with the Holy Spirit, though. So what it's telling us is that this is not just Paul kind of doing something. It, there's a sense of a couple of things happening. One, he gets a clear sense of clarity and spiritual discernment as to the true nature of this man. And then secondly, he feels compelled to allow the Holy Spirit to respond in a way that would be extraordinary. And he says, you son of the devil, full of every sort of deceit and fraud, you are the enemy of all that is good. Will you never stop perverting the true ways of the Lord? Watch now, for the Lord has laid uh, his hand of punishment upon you, and you will be, there it is, the eyes, you will be struck blind. And you will not see the sunlight for some time, it won't be forever, but for a for a period, and instantly mist and darkness came over the man's eyes, and he began slowly groping around, begging for someone to take his hand and lead him. When the governor saw what had happened, he became a believer. He was astonished at the teaching about the Lord. The blindness, one man's blindness, opened the eyes of another. And all of a sudden, Sergius Paulus says, I, 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 be I believe. I will believe in this Jesus. And it was a moment, it was a remarkable moment. Uh, it's a marking point moment because it was the first time something like this had ever happened this way. And I'll tell you, you know, go back to that ninth verse because, and here's the reason I wanted us to really to get this relook is that it says Saul, also known as Paul. That's the first time in the Bible he's ever referred to as Paul. This is a marking point. Acts 13 becomes a change. This moment, a lot of people say, why did he do it right? Why is all of a sudden, from this point on, he calls himself Paul? Why? Just, there's a reason. There's, there's, it's connected to something. It didn't just happen haphazardly. It's true, it's possible that Paul was someone who had been given two names, uh, that he had his Saul was his Hebrew name, the name of which he was most proud uh, because he was very proud of his lineage and his, his training. And he saw himself, as he said later, a Hebrew of Hebrews. But his dad was a Roman citizen, which was a unique thing, in a sense that it allowed him certain access and certain 
privileges, and most likely it had to do with business, but he was given this unique opportunity. So it's possible that Paul had been his Gentile name, his Latin name, uh, for a while, but that he didn't use it. It's also possible that this is the moment. One thing, okay, whether or not it had been something he had or he takes on himself at this moment, one thing is clear. This is, this is the moment where he starts to use it. And, there's, and I think there's a real reason for it. I mean, uh, he starts, again, and refer to himself exclusively out of, his, out of his Gentile Latin name as Paul. Now, you know what? In the Bible, names meant something, even more than they do today. We pick names because we like them, uh, like how they sound, or they mean something to us, you know, or for our children. But and we might give people nicknames, you know. But in their day, names often captured aspirations and sometimes even spiritual marking points. And, uh, and think about it. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? They all, a lot of them had things within it. Abraham and Sarah, for example. Abraham's name, Abraham's name was changed from Abram to Abraham. Sarah, his wife, her name was Sarah. It was changed to Sarah. In both cases, signaling that they were going to be the father and mother, if you will, in her case, a princess over many people. That their descendants would be like the sand of the sea, sand, um, you know, the grains of sand and the stars in the sky. That this, one, this woman barren would bear fruit in her old age and that it would be a God thing completely. And, and indeed, it happened that the, the promise of not only a great nation, the descendants of Abraham, but also all people who follow him in a sense by faith in Christ are, the Bible says, descendants of Abraham. A great nation. It's a promise came true. That name change meant something. You think about their grandson, Jacob. There was a point where he was running from God, running from his brother, afraid for his life, a conniver. God says, there's a change coming in your life. I'm taking your name. You used to be called Jacob, I'm not, which meant supplanter, devious one, finding a way around. Now I'm calling you Israel. Prince of God, Prince of God, this idea of being, of being called into a new place. Think about Jesus when he was talking to one of his key disciples. You'll know it immediately who we're talking about. He says, Simon Barjona, Simon, son of John, I'm giving you a new name. I'm calling you Peter. I'm calling into being a change of your character. I want to build, you have been, it implied, a man unreliable. Now I'm planting you in a new way. I'm calling you Peter, someone who can be built on. In this case, we did, there's no statement that suggests that God said, your name is no longer Saul. It is now Paul. There's nothing, there's nothing that would imply that, that this was something that, that, was, that he was told. He doesn't say that. He, but what we know is he starts using this name, Paul. Why? What happened? What, what was it that motivated him? I think... The timing of it is significant. Why? When does it occur? It occurs at the moment where the, his first true Gentile convert that we know explicitly is connected to his ministry pushing outside the place of safety. It's distinct because it's so unique. It's the first. And Sergius Paulus becomes the first of many people who are going to, many Gentiles who are going to come to Jesus because of Paul's ministry. Um, and I remember how after that conference, remember how when he had been um, uh, met by Jesus on the road to Damascus, 
And that moment with Christ when he says, with the, again, there's the blinding again. He, he can't see, he's blind by the light so shining so brightly. He says, who are you? Instinctively, he knows it's God. Who are you, Lord? What, are, what do you want from me? And that voice that comes back, it says to him, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And it's hard for you to fight against me, kick against the pricks, the thorns. Stop it. And that change that occurs in his life, three days he's in the room in Damascus by himself, blinded. God tells him in his vision, he says, there's going to come a man who's going to come and he's going to pray over you. That man, Ananias, is on the other side. He's praying. He's a follower of Jesus. He has also a vision, and the vision is, go to a street called Straight, and there you will find a man. I want you to lay your hands upon him and pray over him. And in the vision, he says, but Lord, this is a bad man. He kills many people. He hates you. He hates people who love you. I don't, why should I go near him? Go. And then he said this to him. I asked them if they could put it up, Acts 9, 15. Go, because he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name. Here it is, before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. There's going to be an astonishing scope to his reach. And now, for him, this interaction with Sergius Paulus was, that resulted in this Roman governor coming to faith in Christ must have touched him profoundly. Remember we talked about how he'd been on the shelf for a while, and all of a sudden, it's like there's a definitive connection with him for, to the core purpose of his calling. Now, for, now he know, think about it. This is the reason. This is why God called me. This is my purpose for being born in him. And in this moment, he is touching that core purpose. And it must have just, and God showed up in an amazing way. And it must have just stirred him. And he starts calling himself Paul. Now, Paul, now listen, Saul, I mentioned this earlier, was the name given to him at his birth by his parents. Um, it was a name of great significance. Saul, was con it connected him to his bloodlines that reached all the way back to the, how we say it, the greatest member of his tribe, that Israel had a tribe identity, and his tribe was the tribe of Benjamin. It was the line of Benjamin. And Benjamin's greatest figure, the one that they were most proud of in their lineage, was the first king of Israel, Saul. And his parents intentionally named him Saul. You know what his name means? Literally, Saul means desired. And they named him Saul. That name he wore with a badge of honor. It, and, and he probably wore it proudly. And he, and he now gives up that name and takes on the name Paul as his new identity. You know what Paul means? Saul means greatly desired. Paul means little. <laughs> and for his name is going to connect him with the people he feels called to reach, the Gentiles. And he takes on the name Little. And I think it's, it's hard not to see a contrast where he will no longer glory, listen, in his pedigree, in his status. He had always been so proud. Pharisee, Pharisees, trained at the feet of Gamaliel, a Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Benjamin. My name is Saul. And he gives that up, and he basically now he takes on a different name. He takes on a name far less glorious. Again, he's going to, it speaks of humility, 
little, little, I mean, I look at it, it speaks volumes about now how he sees himself. The least of the apostles, one who is not even worthy to be called a representative of Jesus because I once killed people, he says. Blood is on my hands. I don't know why God called me, but he did. And he sent me out to talk to people, and now it was happening, to talk to people that he said there would be amazing things that would open up. People would give him an opportunity to share the message of Jesus in a way that, that it was so un- unique to him. And yet he also was told, but you're also going to suffer tremendously. We talked about that as well. The, the taking on of Paul, not only was it practical, because it also meant that he was now saying, I am going to, I am, I am going to find a way to connect with the people I've been primarily called to reach. He walked into that. He wasn't emphasizing his difference. He was emphasizing his commonality. There was a sort of way of, you know, I think it's, it's, it's a great lesson in it as well for you and me, how we represent the Lord. There, there is a wisdom in meeting people where they are. And I'm not talking about blending into a point of anonymity to where no one can ever tell that we have any real commitment to Christ. But I am suggesting that every people group and every social circle we, we, we move into, there is a wisdom and a way to approach it. I look at how Paul approaches the people he's trying to reach, and he's not trying to impose. You know what he would later say to, in Corinthians? He would say, to the Jew, I became like a Jew. He says, to those who were under the law, I became under the law. I, I was willing to move in that. If, if it goes to the, to, the, to the outsider, to the Greek, I became a Greek. Uh, he says, basically what he's saying is, I was a bit extreme, I'm, a, I'm an adaptive person. I'm an adaptive person because he says, I've, I've become, every, I become all things to all men. Think about what he's saying. Not as a, a way of sort of blending in, again, to a point of irrelevancy. But he says, I am willing to sacrifice the minor things and find ways to connect because I care about everybody coming to know Jesus. And so I will adapt my approach to meet the people that I feel a heart for. And it becomes a pattern in his life. He will move, he will adapt. It's a great lesson for you and me. And we want to, you know what? It's good for us to be able to think about, Lord, how am, I, how am I supposed to talk about you in this environment? How would you like me to represent that? What does that mean to be part of something, but at the same time, Lord, to know that I've been called to follow you? And what was that, what's that going to look like? What are the things that I can easily compromise and, and go with? And what things should I never Never compromise. That if I were to give them up would, would undermine the core of my integrity with you. That would essentially be working against the very thing that I, I love the most. There are some lines that he would not cross, but there were many that he was willing to, to, to work with because he cared about reaching people. It's a great lesson. And guess what? I don't know if it's coincidence, but the name Paul is the same name of his first recorded convert, Sergius Paulus. And I think it's connected. And for him, it becomes a kind of a market point. In fact, this is what I want to do. In the minutes that we have left, I want to suggest something. I want to suggest that for Paul, every time he said his name, it reminded him of his core purpose. And that he could use that. There might be times where he was feeling particularly beaten down, dismayed, discouraged. But he would, I, I just, in my mind's eye, I hear him saying, I am Paul. What is your name? I am Paul. And every time he did it, it reminded him of why he was who he was and what he was doing. And, what, and he maybe even took him back to the very first person whose eyes were open to Jesus because of what he was doing. The core of his calling, his purpose. Here's the deal, you guys. I'll just put this up, number one. Because it has to do with the, the life of a, of a follower of Christ. Things concerning the life, of the Christian life, that will make it more vibrant, alive, and healthy. This is what I'm going to put out there based upon what we've just looked at. Hear me out. Number one, I'm going to suggest it's really good, and this has been good for me as the years have gone by, it's good to have marking points in our Christian life. Paul's name change 
in Acts 13 is a marking point. It occurs at a pivotal time in his life. For him, it becomes a marker. And I'm going to say that you and I would do well to have markers uh, in certain moments or seasons in our spiritual life. It might be a verse, a picture, a memento, something that connects us to what God has done. And, and there might be times where we might be feel, feel compelled to say, as we're reading God's word, one of the reasons I say, Lord, often show me a word within your word. As I read your word, give me a word within it. I remember when I was a young follower of Jesus. For example, a lot of people will do this. A lot of people will have a, a verse for a season of their lives. They feel led of God to take a verse and say, this is my verse. I need to claim it. I need to believe it. I need to, I need to see it a lot and find creative ways to connect it. Because I feel, what happened early on in my life, for example, I was, I, was, uh, I was just a young follower of the Lord, and I remember reading a passage and it was one of those moments. You know what? Not all moments are the same in our life with God. There are certain moments that stand out to you, and this was one of mine. I was going, again, just starting to really read with a heart and a hunger to learn God's word. I started reading a little bit of devotional uh, with um, there was some little commentary with a verse, and I'd read it every day, and I'd go and I'd start praying about it. Again, I was just in high school at the time, and I remember how excited my heart was. You know, I had learned about the Bible since I was in Sunday school, but I never, re I knew stories, but I really had it, I hadn't read it fully, and I didn't have a good, good sense of the scope of it. And, it, and there was parts of it now that I was reading, because I was reading it from a different perspective. My heart was awakened to the things of God. I was feeling excited about the Lord. I still do. And I was, I was feeling like, Lord, I want to say that, because as the years go by, we can lose our heart for him. And I don't ever want to lose my heart for him. I know we change, and we get older, and we get hurt a lot, and that's the way life is, but I pray that our love for God would, would remain and prevail as the years go by, even unto the end of my life. May I love you, Lord, with all of my heart, soul, mind, and body. That is my desire. By your grace, may it happen. Back to where we're supposed to be now, as I say. <laughs> um, I, I, was, I, was, I was reading, and there was this verse, and I, it caught me. And, the, and then at the end of that verse, it, it was like I felt like the Lord was taken out a marker. And he said, I just I felt, this is for you. That's for you. Now you claim it and you live into it. And that verse was, was in Luke 22. Um, I wasn't any more spiritual that day than any other day. But I was reading that passage. And the passage was a very interesting one, not one that you would think. Because it had to do with this interaction that was going on between Jesus and Peter. And Jesus said to Peter, he said, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. He wants to tear you up from the inside out. But I have prayed for you. And when you are restored, and then the phrase that hooked me, strengthen your brethren. And I, and I it was like, wow, God, I, I, I feel like this is, and, it, and that, that had been, that became for me kind of a life verse. And at different seasons of my life, I'll sit down and I'll, I'll write certain things out, and I'm a big believer in this, that, that there are certain times where God will give us a verse that says, this is for you to claim at this time in your life. And honor that. Honor that. Mark it. Remember we talked about how when they were crossing the Jordan River, Israel was, they were crossing the Jordan. We talked about, I think we talked about this at the Warfield event, our anniversary. And we said they, they stopped, and the Lord said, build a memorial to remember this moment 
Put it in the middle, build it, put the rocks, remember it. Say to your children, this is what happened there. Tell the story, mark the moment. There are other times where God would, they would, they would stop and say, stop, we're going to build an altar to the Lord. We're going to remember this moment. This place is, is, is special to us. That's how it is in the, in the life with God, our faith life. There are moments that we need to mark and we need to honor them. We need to remember them. You know, I, there are times where, we'll, you know, I was, I was writing on my, a whiteboard and I have a, by where I exercise in my garage, I have a little board and I'll periodically I'll write something when it comes to my mind and I'll just say, I wrote that, I said, you know, I was thinking about my decades. I said, this decade, I, I gave it a, t- a phrase and I put this one and this one. Now, I knew I was being amazingly presumptuous, obviously, right? Because who knows when our life closes and we go home. But assuming it, I said, this is what I aspire to. I feel like I'm supposed to live into that. You know, when I was reading a, a magazine, and uh, one of the things I liked about this magazine is at the end of, the, at the end of it, they, uh, they have this part where they'll ask somebody to, uh, usually it's, it's somebody who's accomplished or achieved or somebody who's an artist, they ask them to share something personal about their life. And then what they do is they, they have a table. They say, we want you to put on this table key objects or things or something that reminds you of special moments and then tell us what they are and then give us a little bit more background on a couple of those things. And it's amazing to me, because I'm always intrigued by it. I always like to, uh, to read and think about, well, why did this mean something to somebody? What does it say to them? Same way, you and I, I, I think, you know, my, my wife, for example. I, I took it to her, from her when she was sleeping this morning next to her bed. <laughs> she doesn't know that happened. Anyway, there's this little, there's a rock. And I get, probably got at one of the women's conferences that they were at or the retreats that they did. But I remember um, her sharing this with me. And uh, it had next to it, and it meant something at the time because I needed it. And it was called Steadfast. And on it was, because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be dismayed. Therefore, I have set my face like a stone, determined to do his will. And I, know, and I know that I will triumph. That's Isaiah 50, verse 7. And every now and then I look at it. Every now and then I look at my grandfather in a photo. I, rem- I try to remember things. The whys connect to the purpose. Remember when God showed up in an amazing way. Every now and then we need to do this. And it's good for us to put something on the board that reminds us of where we want to go. And that leads me to this piece, which is the second one. I spent a lot of time on the first one, so I gotta go over <laughs> But it stood out to me as well, is that God really does care, number two, about our transformation, because at the core of the Christian life is transformation. Stay with me on it. It's designed to change us from the inside out, right? Um, I'm reminded of what something Paul would later say when he'd be writing in his letter, talking about transformation, talking about change. He would say, uh, he would write to the, to the Corinthian church, in his second letter to them, he would say, therefore, um, if, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Old things are passed away. Then he uses the word, behold, all things become new. He's talking about transformation. He experienced it. Paul, Paul, and Paul's experience with Christ reorients his life. It resets it. It's what it's supposed to do. All of a sudden, he has a different identity. That identity is captured by his name change. And I think, I think there are times when we just need to remember, Lord, you embrace me so that I can embrace you. 
and I need to give you permission, because you won't do it against my will, but I give you permission to redefine my identity as one loved by you, so that I don't see myself on the basis of what I've achieved. Paul achieved a lot. I don't see myself on the basis even of my ethnicity. I don't see myself on the basis of my sexuality. I see myself on the basis of who you say I am in you. And I see myself as one loved by you in Christ, and I want to represent you as one committed to you. That has to do with transformation from the inside out. And that leads to the final piece, which is this, for me anyway. The Christian life is supposed to be a humble life. And I'm not talking about, like, falsely humble like fake humble. Someone says, what does that look like? I'm not sure if I can describe it, but everybody knows what it is when you see it. But I am, and I'm certainly not talking about self-loathing. Fake humility and self, or self-loathing, two extremes, I'm not talking about that. But I am talking about being little in our own eyes as a key to releasing God's power in our lives that God resists and listen to me, it's going to challenge our pride, it's going to challenge our arrogance, it's going to challenge our selfish delusions, just like it did with Paul. Because God resists the proud. But what does he do? He gives grace to the humble. If we humble ourselves, God will love us even, he, and he does, he loves us at our worst, but he will that we will feel the grace of God. Some of the times where I've most profoundly felt Loved by the Lord is when I felt least deserving. And, and in those places of shame, come to him and say, Lord, if you, I don't know why you love me, but you do. And I, I want to open my, I give you my life. I have, help me. God, resist the proud, the arrogant. But he gives grace to the humble. How I say it, the greatness is found, true greatness is found in humility of spirit. Our Lord was great and he was a servant gave his life away. Saul was a spiritually proud man, but he surrendered his greatness to a great savior and became truly great. May it be so with us. May it be so. Lord, teach us your ways. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would remind us to find ourselves in you. And I also ask that you would give us a right sense of our identity it's that our culture is constantly telling us stuff, Lord. And it's just kind of what's in vogue for the day. And we're so influenced because it's the world we live in. It's our world. And yet, Lord, remind us that we are to find ourselves in you, that you call us to find ourselves as one beloved. And that is to call for something out of us, Lord, that wants to follow you with humility of heart and openness of spirit. I pray that we would not fight you, God. It's easy to run. It's easy to, to, to fight. That's what Saul did, Lord. And you broke him. And Lord, I pray, I pray that we would, we would just be open to the things you're trying to grow and, and deepen inside of us, Lord, that we would not just go through the motions of our life with you, but that it would, it would be a life that's vibrant and that we're working and we're open and we're, we're responsive and we're listening, especially in our low places, Lord. We're really listening. Help us, Lord. Help us not get proud in our high places and help us to not give up in our low ones. But in both cases, to trust you and your love for us. Uh, stir our hearts, I pray. Bless our time, Lord, also of, of giving and, 
and bless our, our closing song, which is to connect to this. This is what I ask. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.